Hey everybody, it's good to see you. Um, we're going to be back in the book of Luke today, so if you want to grab a Bible or you want to follow along in the app, you can do that. Um, but before we do, I just want to give a quick little plug, since we don't really have people doing the announcements anymore, um, for our Easter get-together next week. So we haven't been able to meet in over a year, and I'm very excited to see you all. Um, and so we would uh, love for you to join us. All the info is there um, on the website. We're going to be meeting. Um, we're going to do the... Um, we're going to do the... Uh, the, the normal service, we're going to have you guys watch it at 10.30, and then at 12.30, we're going to meet at Marina Green for a little Easter picnic. So we're not going to provide any food or anything because of COVID, um, but we encourage you, um, if you want to bring a snack or bring some lunch or whatever, um, you know, to show up. And we're going to do social distancing and, you know, wash our hands and have sanitizer, all that stuff to keep everybody safe. Um, but I'm really excited to see you all. Go check out that part of the website. I'll put the link somewhere. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's on the website somewhere. You can find it. The stuff about Easter um, and where to meet at the Marina Green. Um, and I'm excited to see you all there. Okay, so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. We've been in Luke chapter 8. It's kind of a long chapter. We've been here for a long time. And today we're going to talk about waiting and patience. Um, and we don't we hate to wait. Um, I hate waiting. I hate waiting in line. I hate, you know, um, I hate traffic. And just think about how mad we get, or at least I do, when somebody cuts me off in traffic and then I have to wait an extra five seconds. Um, do you remember when COVID started and you had to go to the grocery store and it was like, I mean, I remember I waited once 45 minutes just to get into the grocery store. Um, we hate Amazon delays. You know, how dare you? You said two days. It's been three days. Um, because actually, did you know a lot of stuff's been um, delayed because uh, there's a backup, people ordering so much stuff online. There's a backup at the Long Beach port. There's a backup at the port of Los Angeles. There's a backup at the port of Oakland. I mean, there's literally, um, when I when I go down uh, and sit in my van at the beach, um, I watch the big giant container ships come in. And so many come in, and then they just wait there for days and days to offload stuff. And then that one ship this week got stuck in the Suez Canal, and everybody now has to wait um, for their... their um, you know, the stuff that they ordered online, right? Well, there's also more serious things that we hate waiting for in life. You know, I'm waiting for a spouse. We're waiting for kids. I'm waiting for this job, this promotion. We're waiting to plant our church uh, because of COVID, you know, and get back to think like uh, we talked about that, right? We're in this sort of, as a church, we're in this season of waiting. And so uh, I want you to keep that in the front of your mind as we talk about this text. We hate waiting, um, but Jesus is going to, through Jesus's actions, we're going to see some, we're going to see sort of a biblical perspective on this. Now, let's set the the um, the context for uh, our story today. Um, if you remember, we uh, what I said was there's a section here in in Luke where Luke gives us um, four stories that show who Jesus is. Right? Everybody's been asking this question: Who is this man? Um, and there's there's these four kind of back to back to back to back whatever stories that show who Jesus is. The first is that he is the king and he has the power over creation. And that was the calming of the sea. Then last week we read about his power over not just the natural, but the supernatural with his power over demonic forces. And then today we're actually going to read this text twice. So we're going to read it once this week. Then next week is Easter. Then the week after we're going to do the same text again. We're going to answer uh, a little bit of a different question from this text. So today we're going to see that he has power over uh, so the, let's see, we have nature, supernatural. Today we're going to see he has power over sickness as he heals a woman. And then we're going to see that again, just like the widow's 
son in the town of Nain. He's going to raise somebody from the dead. And we're going to see he has power even over death. And so um, there's a lot of text here. So let's just jump in so we can get you guys home before uh, work tomorrow. And we're going to start here in in chapter 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So, if you remember, he was um, uh, he was teaching and that sort of stuff, and then he, he got in the Sea of Galilee and he went to the other side. That was where the storm on the sea was. And then after the storm, he met the, the guy at the, in the region of the Gerasenes and the, the, the man um, oppressed by the legion of demons. And uh, those guys kicked him out because he killed all their pigs, and then he comes home and... Um, or he, you know, he comes, he gets back in the boat with his whole disciples. It was actually a bunch of different boats, a little armada of fishing boats. And they come back to the other side and everybody, um, now he's back in the, the, the Jewish region and everybody welcomes him. And Luke spends a lot of time in his gospel, making sure that we really understand that point, that where Jesus went, um, people, uh, welcomed him and the, the people loved him. And today's actually Palm Sunday. Well, I mean, it's not Sunday when I'm filming this, but when you're watching this, I think it's Palm Sunday. And, you know, we have that example there, too. The crowds loved Jesus. And um, we'll talk about this when we get to that text. But that crowd that loved Jesus at the beginning of the week, a lot of people will say that's the same crowd that had him killed at the end of the week. It probably wasn't. And we'll talk about why uh, those were two different groups. But you remember him coming into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and they're calling him king. Jesus was very popular. People really loved this guy. Um, verse 41, let's keep going. So he comes back, they welcome him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So next we meet, the next guy we meet in the story is a guy named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And if you remember back from the beginning of Luke when we talked about Jesus going to the synagogue in Nazareth, um, we talked all about how a lot of what we do in church is sort of modeled after the way that first century Jewish folks had their synagogue services. And um, the, the synagogues were run by these guys, these elders, and one of those elders was a guy, they called him the ruler of the synagogue. It was a lot like what we would say, um, a pastor. He's an important um, he's an important guy. And what we read in this text is that this very important man in this culture um, that, that really valued um, sort of the hierarchy of culture, right, of um, society, uh, this very important guy who's sort of at the top of the food chain, according to this town and these Jewish folks, he is completely and utterly helpless, and he is humbled. And he comes to Jesus, and he falls at his feet, which is a huge deal. He, he's begging Jesus. And the reason that he's in this state is because he has a 12-year-old daughter, and she's dying, and there's nothing that he can do about it. And he heard about Jesus at some point. Maybe he had seen Jesus teach. Maybe he had seen Jesus heal people. Jesus has been traveling around Galilee now for a while, and his reputation has been building. And so this guy, Jairus, he comes to Jesus, and he begs him, please come heal my daughter. Um, Now, Jesus goes. One interesting thing, though, is if we think about this in the context of Luke, do you remember the story of the centurion? where the centurion uh, had a servant who was sick, and uh, Jesus says, I'll come with you. And the guy, the centurion, the, the, the Gentile Roman occupying soldier is the one who had the great faith. And he said, oh, you don't even have to come. Just say the word. You're Jesus, right? He's basically saying, you're the king, right? If you do this, she'll be healed. Um, what we see here is that the, the centurion has a greater faith than uh, the pastor. But Uh, Jesus still kind of lowers himself to the level of the pastor, and he says, yeah, I'll come, 
right? I'll, uh, I'll go. And that's important, right? Is that this Roman is portrayed as having this great faith. Again, the theme in Luke is the outsiders are coming in. It's not the people that you would expect that are the people of great faith. Um, these are not the, the kingdom, right? Is, um, the kingdom of Jesus is upside down. It's the upside down, you know, inside out, outside in kingdom. And so uh, we see that theme again. We're not going to harp on it for the whole sermon here like I usually do, but um, we see that again. We see nuggets of this all throughout the book of Luke. And so um, uh, Jairus now, this guy, this pastor and Jesus, they start heading towards the house. But of course, the whole crowd, right, is following him. Again, Jesus was super popular. Like, uh, what I always tell you to picture is picture the Beatles, you know, uh, trying to get to their car back in the 60s. If you've seen that footage or, you know, like, I don't know, there's a million things just like that. Um, so the crowd now is following and uh, they're all kind of like, um, you know, walking. Like when you walk out of the ballpark, everybody's kind of pressing up against each other. That's important. Verse 43. So we've met Jairus. Now we're going to meet our second main character of this story. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So next we meet a woman. One interesting point here is she's not given a name the same way that Jairus is given a name. We're told his name. We're not told her name. Um, that'll be, that just kind of shows us who they were in this society. Um, and she has this illness. Now she has this discharge of blood, some kind of a gynecological issue, um, exactly what's going on. No, it doesn't really say, but, um, this sickness cost her, her life savings, everything she owned, she had spent on doctors. Um, and, uh, so she's broke. Um, she's ritually unclean because of this flow of blood. Um, this, if you read back in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, um, I think part of Exodus where the law is given, right? There was all these rules about ritual purity. And we talked about that a bunch. And, um, According to those rules, because of this, she would not have been able to participate in most of the life of the people of Israel because she would have been in a perpetual state of uncleanness, of uh, impurity. And what we talked about was that doesn't mean she's bad. It just means she's in this state where she's touching um, like blood or death or that sort of thing, right? Um, so people would look at her in this culture and they would say she's clearly not blessed by God, right? She's clearly done something to deserve what she's getting, right? God does not like this woman because she's broke and she's sick and she's ritually impure. She's hopeless. It's been 12 years. Now, ironically, the 12 years is the exact same amount of time uh, that Jairus has, um, his daughter's been alive, right? So there's a 12-year-old girl and there's a woman who, since that girl was born, has been sick. She's been dealing with this for a very long time. And so she comes up with this plan. Look what she does. Verse 44, she came up behind him, that's Jesus, she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately uh, the, the, uh, her discharge of blood ceased. That's crazy. So, so now um, she comes up behind Jesus and she touches him. Our eyes would uh, miss, our eyes miss a very important point here that anybody in the first century world would have easily been the first thing that they jumped to is by her touching Jesus, she has now rendered him ceremonially unclean. And he has to go do all these washings and take all this time to get back into um, a religious state of purity. Um, uh, it, it's a little bit nuts, right, in this culture. This is absolutely... Um, this is absolutely unheard of. And this is probably why she does this in secret. 
because maybe she thinks, well, as long if he doesn't know, it's not so bad. He won't even know that he's technically ritually impure. This is super risky. Jesus is a very important rabbi. He's a very popular guy. There's a huge crowd following him, and uh, this lady reaches out and uh, she touches. She touches him. Now, Mark gives us a bit more detail uh, in his story. In Mark 5, in the same story that Mark writes, he says, if um, the, the woman says, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. So she specifically is reaching out to touch the fringe of his garment. And this comes from Numbers. This is important. This comes from Numbers chapter 15. Now, you know, that they wore those kind of long cloak sort of things. And in Numbers 15, um, it's in verse 38 and 39. It, it tells the people of Israel to put these blue uh, tassels uh, at the bottom, you know, these, these tassels and sort of a family seal at the bottom of their cloak. And w- that would sort of remind them of the Lord. It was sort of a way like today how people wear a cross around their neck and they look at the cross and they think about Jesus. That's the idea. Put these tassels down here. And when you see that, it'll just something that will remind you of the Lord. And so the superstition was, um, from her end, if I could touch the tassels where, uh, like his this this part of his garment, if I could reach out and touch these tassels that are a very important part of his clothing, um, I will be healed. And so she reached. So it's this this first century kind of m- almost magical superstition. She applies that to Jesus, and she reaches out and she touches it, uh, and she was healed. And it's not just that she was healed; she was healed immediately. But again, the pattern in Luke goes like this. So if you're reading this story, what should happen is her uncleanness should transfer to Jesus. But what the pattern in Luke consistently is that when Jesus comes in contact with something unclean, instead of him becoming unclean, the other person becomes clean. Do you remember when he touched the leper? Do you remember when he accepted Levi or Matthew, uh, Levi, Matthew, same guy, into the, the disciples? Do you remember when he touched the dead body at the town of Nain while they were carting the dead body out on the, um, or he touched, not the body, but the casket kind of thing? The idea is life flows from Jesus, uh, where normally uh, it's supposed to go the other way around, right? The, the uncleanness and the death flows away, but he kind of blocks that and he pushes life. Um, and it happens. It's amazing. It happens immediately. Luke points that out on purpose, right? And he's the doctor. This wasn't some sort of a, you know, slow, gradual, whatever this, I mean, his, Jesus's power is, is over sickness is absolute. And so when this, this woman touches Jesus, she is healed right away. Verse 45, let's see what happens. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on you. Now, okay, here's the thing. Did Jesus know? So Jesus asks, who was touching me? And did Jesus know who touched him? Yeah, probably. Um, this isn't a question in search of information, right? There's a deeper purpose here. It's like when, uh, you know, if you have kids, it's when one of the kids, you know, broke something and you say, who broke it? Even though you already know who broke it. You're trying to get an answer. You're trying to teach a lesson that sort of thing. And so Peter, now he, he kind of, uh, he speaks back to Jesus, this really dumb question from, from what I read. And if you take the different stories where this shows up in the gospels, um, the translation here kind of muddles the sarcasm of Peter's remark, right? This was a borderline disrespectful thing that Peter is saying to Jesus. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody touched you. We're in the middle of a crowd. What a stupid question is basically what Peter is saying. But that's not what Jesus meant. Look at what he says in verse 46. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive perceive that power has gone out from me. So Jesus wasn't asking who touched him. 
Maybe another way to put this would be who grabbed me, right? A grab is different from a touch. A touch can happen on accident. A grab doesn't. Um, who touched me on purpose? Because power has gone out of me. Now, what does this mean? How does Jesus's power work? Well, if you look through the whole gospels, I have no idea. That's what it means. <laughs> um, nobody knows exactly how this works. And people will, I'm, I, I don't like taking things we don't, that aren't explained by the Bible and explaining them some other way. And a lot of times, people do that when we come across these sort of passages. So this is what we know. Somehow Jesus knew power had left him. What that power was, how he knew, all of that stuff, how that works with his divine and his human nature. I don't know, right? But somehow Jesus knew. And that's just, he, he never really explains that comment. He just says it, right? Power has gone out from me. All right, verse 47. So instead of harping on that and trying to figure out, is Jesus, does he have a power reserve? Can he run? I don't know. Um, let's keep going. Verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So the woman now comes up and tells her story and she's terrified. Have you ever been so just emotionally distraught or scared that you were literally shaking? Um, I have no proof of this. Um, but I would bet a lot of money that while she was going through this whole thing and telling her entire story to Jesus and to the crowd, that Jesus knelt down and was probably super comforting and gentle with her as she told her story. This fits with everything that we know about Jesus. And you can just tell from the way that Luke describes this, um, that this was a really intense scene. Um, this woman was really, really distraught. Now, why does Jesus do this, though? Why didn't he just let her touch the garment, touch his cloak or whatever, uh, take her healing and leave? Why not just let her leave in peace? Well, think about it. What would have happened if he had done that? What would have happened if Jesus hadn't stopped and had this conversation? She would have lived her entire life thinking that she stole the cure from this traveling preacher. And that would have been it, right? She would have believed in some superstitious magic. I don't know. She, she wouldn't have had the complete picture. And Jesus did not want that for her. He wanted to take her, uh, take her faith to a deeper level. And uh, he wanted to grow her faith. Um, the faith that she, this spark of faith that she obviously has. And we're actually going to get next, the next time we talk about this passage in two weeks, we're going to talk about, we're going to compare the faith of Jairus and the faith of this woman. And, but Jesus here, he wants to, he's, he's uh, cultivating this. He's growing this faith. And you can see that what he does here is actually super gracious. He's making her go through something that's extremely terrifying and extremely uncomfortable in this moment so that the rest of her life and the rest of her eternity would be better. And we see that in verse 48. Look what Jesus says to her. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the only person in the Gospels that Jesus, the only woman in the Gospels that Jesus calls a daughter. That's super huge, right? That is gigantic. That, that this is the woman that Jesus calls daughter. There's such a tenderness in his voice. And he says, look, daughter, your faith has made you well. She believed that her touch had some sort of, or his touch had some sort of uh, superstitious magic that healed her, right? But Jesus is making it very clear that, no, 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 it's not some superstitious magic. It's your faith in me that uh, has healed you. And again, Jesus uses that when he says healed, he uses that Greek word we've talked about before, sozo, where it could mean healed or it could mean saved. And a lot of times in the New Testament, they use it to mean both, right? Kind of this double meaning. And so he says, look, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Now go in peace. Don't go in... Um, 
wonder what happened. Don't go and uh, like a superstitious whatever. He's go in peace, right? She's been given peace. She was not only physically healed, she was spiritually healed, right? The sozo in that two senses. Okay, so this is a, a, a great story, but let's stop for a second and let's remember the context here. What happened at the beginning of the story? Jairus comes up to Jesus in a panic. Jesus, my daughter is about to die. We need to run. Like, we need to hustle. We need to, you know, uh, hit the old dusty trail. We need to get over there so that you can heal her. Now, uh, when I, I'll tell you a story. When I broke all my ribs on the one side when I got hit by a truck on Van Ness on my motorcycle in 2016, um, which actually I'm a little worried because I keep twisting and hurting. I have a spot where my ribs didn't heal right. Oh, boy. And even right now, I woke up this morning. Oh, man, my ribs hurt. Anyway, I broke all the ribs on this side, and the one rib, though, I I smashed it to the point where the doctor said there's too many breaks to count. You didn't break your rib. You, you um, obliterated it or whatever. And so um, I was at the ER. The, the, the ambulance was actually great. They were two blocks away having lunch. They came and picked me up. They took me to General. And I'm at General in the ER. And, you know, they cut my shirt off, and they're doing all this stuff to me, and, and I'm laying there, I'm all doped up or whatever. Now, I'm laying in the room, and all these doctors are working on me, and, I mean, there's probably 15 people in the room. And, uh, you know, I'm just whistling away, do-do-do-do-do, you know. Uh, and um, all of a sudden, everybody in the room dropped what they were doing, and they ran out of the room. And it was actually really scary, because they gave me some medicine that I didn't know they had given me, and then they all ran out of the room, and then all of a sudden... They were worried about internal bleeding, and all of a sudden, I started feeling lightheaded like I was going to pass out. So I started screaming, and then somebody came in and said, no, 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 that was just the medicine, right? Now, why did everybody run out of the room that I was in? Because uh, somebody with multiple gunshots was brought into the ER while they were working on me. And what happens, it's called ER triage, right, is you take the more serious cases first. I was not going to die from my injuries. This gunshot guy may have died from his. And so um, that's the way it works, right? And so uh, those doctors, they were good doctors because they left me and they went and helped that guy. Now, what would happen, though, if that was backwards? What if they were working on a guy with a gunshot and then all of a sudden everybody ran out of the room to go help me because I had a bunch of broken ribs? Uh, or even worse, right? What if they left a gunshot wound for somebody with some allergies or something? Now, here's where this gets sticky. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He is in a hurry to help somebody with an acute problem, and he stops, and he spends a good amount of time with somebody who just has a chronic problem, right? He leaves the gunshot victim to help somebody with the allergies. Okay, well, her thing was way more serious than allergies, but you know what I mean. You know, I don't want to belittle her 12-year. It was a terrible condition, but her condition would have been the same in an hour, and nothing would have changed in an hour, but that's not what Jesus does. He stops, and he has this very personal and deep conversation, and this woman leaves, right, sozo. She leaves healed, and she leaves saved, and she leaves in peace. Imagine Jairus during this entire conversation. His 12-year-old girl is dying, his only daughter. His last-ditch effort was to try to find Jesus. And he, some, you know, he, Jesus had been gone, and he comes back, and he's like, oh, the timing of this is, you know, he... Uh, they didn't know how long he was going to be on the other side of the sea. He does come back and she's still alive. He runs and he gets Jesus. As soon as he finds out he's back on this side of the, the sea of Galilee and they, they start running and um, Jesus, he agreed to come and he, he, there's a slight beam of hope in Jairus's eyes, right? 
And they're, they're in this hurry in this huge crowd. They've got the sirens on. They're running red lights, the whole thing. And then out of nowhere, Jesus stops. And he has this lengthy conversation. And Jairus is standing right there with him. He was leading Jesus to his daughter. He's probably, you know, he might have even been holding Jesus' hand. Come on, let's go, right? Um, and every second that goes by, he's getting more and more antsy. And the tension uh, is building. And then the tension turns from just like um, antsy to aggravation. And it's, you know that feeling? It's just, it's boiling up inside of him. His inside is in knots. Right, and he's just so worried. What are you talking to this woman for? And my guess too is, and I have no way to prove this, but my guess is that Jairus was still operating on the normal kind of mode of this society. Jairus is probably also thinking, "Dude, I'm the the the, the leader of the synagogue, and this is some lady who's broke and sick, and God has clearly had it in for this lady. What are you stopping and talking to her for?" Right, my daughter, and you know, you can just you can feel it. He's it, it's boiling up, and then verse 49 happens. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came, someone from Jairus's house came and said, Your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. And you can just imagine, you can just imagine Jairus, the stomach drops. We didn't make it because Jesus stopped and talked to this lady. Now, um, I told you every sermon illustration I'm going to give you for, I don't know, I have 200 episodes of this show to watch, the first 48 that I've been watching a ton of, where um, they follow real detectives around, real homicide detectives as they solve murder cases. It's like a reality show. It's kind of like cops, but they follow homicide detectives um, for at least the first 48 hours after a homicide, right? Um, After a murder. And one of the most gut-wrenching parts of the show is when, like I was just watching one last night where um, this this man was shot on his porch. He was sitting there with his wife and they rushed him to the hospital and then they took the wife down to the um, police station to get her statement to try to find out who shot him. And while they were talking, somebody came in and had to tell the wife, um, I'm sorry, ma'am, your husband didn't make it. And you just see in her face, right, the wife, she just, I mean, she collapsed, she fell apart, she was crying on the ground, um, wailing all of that. It was gut-wrenching to watch, even knowing that this had happened, I don't know, this season I was watching was 2010 or something. I was, you know, this poor woman. And that's probably what Jairus is going through here. He probably just completely fell apart. You know, the, the, the servant comes up and he says, your daughter has died. And Jairus starts, you know, wailing or whatever. And even it doesn't say he was, but I, you can assume, right? In this culture where, especially during funerals, they let the emotions out. Um, now, the servant says something else very interesting. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Um, they assume that Jesus can heal the daughter, but not bring the daughter back to life. Do you see that? They assume that they know how far Jesus's power goes. Jesus's power can heal lepers. He can heal blind people. He can cast out demons. Bringing back from the dead, no, he can't do that. And then look at verse 50. But look what Jesus says. And Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So there's this uh, juxtaposition of fear and faith. Fear and faith are opposites. Now, I'm just going to completely leave this verse alone because we're going to talk about this um, in two weeks when we reread this passage and we talk about faith and what does this passage teach us about faith. In verse 51, um, yeah, verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. 
and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. So again, Jesus takes his inner circle, his three best friends, Jesus, I'm sorry, um, Peter, James, and John, and he takes the parents, and they go in, and there's the mourners. Now, we've talked about funerals. We talked about this especially with the widow at Nain. Um, and the cultural practice was, you know, you had to make a huge deal and a huge scene, and you would hire uh, professional mourners, right? And this was the town pastor, and so you can imagine a lot of people were there because she was already sick, and when she died, more people showed up. And Jesus comes in, and um, he says, don't worry, you know, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. Um, Jesus gets a lot of disrespect in this passage, right? He gets Peter's sarcasm, and literally here, they laugh in his face, because he has said now, no, she's not dead, she's sleeping, because they know she's dead. Right? This is a culture that sees death a lot. Right, We don't see death very much. Death happens in hospitals and it happens somewhere else. But for these people, they see people die all the time. People die in their homes. And so, um, uh, they, you know, they, they're, they think Jesus is just being ridiculous. And so they literally, they laugh at his face. Uh, they laugh at his face. But what Jesus is doing here is he's using sleep as sort of a euphemism for death. Um, Paul picks up on this theme, too, in uh, Thessalonians when he talks about this. Um, and... Uh, the idea that when when your God is the resurrection and the life, right? Death is about as scary as sleep. That's the idea. The New Testament constantly talks about death just being like um, going to sleep. And we'll see why we can sort of have this confidence. Look at this in verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So, Jesus takes her by the hand, and he says, Child, arise. Now, um, in Mark, I want to read to you again from Mark, Mark 5.41. He gives a little bit more detail. Uh, it says, Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. This is amazing, the way um, that Jesus reaches down and brings this girl back to life. I want to read to you this quote from uh, Tim Keller. He's a pastor in um, New York City. He taught a really great sermon on this passage. He says this, Jesus is facing a greater foe than a hurricane. Oh, you know that. He's facing a greater foe than the demons. He's facing death, right? The most inexorable enemy of the human race. Death. Such is his power that if he holds her by the hand, he just gently lifts her up right through it. Right through it. See, honey, get up. Death. When Jesus Christ says, if I have you by the hand... Even death itself is nothing but a good night's sleep. Even death itself can only make you better. If I have you by the hand, that is what my power is like. Such is my power. That's so, so Keller was talking about that, right? That the way that Jesus brought her up so easily is absolutely mind-boggling. It's amazing. And we see that. Yeah, sure, he has power over the hurricane, right? The the Well, the hurricane, the... The storm on the sea, he has the power over the, the man with the demons. He has the power over the sickness. But here, this is the ultimate power, right? This is the power over death. And it specifically says that her spirit returned to her, which means, okay, she really was dead. She wasn't taking a nap. That's how we know Jesus was using sleep as a euphemism, right? Um, spirits don't return to you after a nap. Although I've taken some naps that felt like it, you know, that when I woke up, I was like, oh, man, that's the sleep of the dead right there. Um Melissa, you know, always gives me grief for my three-hour Sunday afternoon naps. Um, 
anyway, so then the next thing he does, he wakes her up, you know, from, from death. And then he says, give her a snack. I love this detail. Uh, this is just what happens when you wake up a girl, you know, a little girl from a nap. Um, we say like, I do this with our girls, right? Honey, it's time to get up. And then we always say this, do you want a snack? And, um, you know, and then they, they rub their eyes and they go get some Cheerios or whatever. Um, except here's the thing. Jesus does that. What I do for our girls, he does that when he wakes somebody up from the dead. It's absolutely amazing. It is easy for him to wake somebody up from the dead as it is for me to get my girls up from a nap. Now, verse 56, look at the end of this passage here. Um, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So again, Jesus says, I don't want you to tell. Um, it's interesting that in the last passage, he told the guy who had the legion of demons, go tell everybody. And now here he's saying, don't tell anybody. Um, one theory is because there he was in a Gentile region that had no expectations of what a Messiah should be. Here he's in a Jewish region where everybody thought they knew who the Messiah was and what they were supposed to do and everything. And he's trying to just sort of control the narrative. Um, he doesn't. He knows that the idea of the Messiah comes with a lot of baggage in this culture, and he's trying to teach them who the Messiah is on his own, right? Okay, so that's the passage, right? That's, that's this story. We're going to read it again in a couple of weeks. But do you see how this passage makes me uneasy? Right, I can feel Jairus's stress while he's standing there while Jesus talks to this woman. I can feel that in my guts. Jesus's priorities in this passage seem flipped. This lady could have waited. And we know that it worked out in the end. We know Jesus brought the girl back to life. But I mean, come on, right? Jesus, what are you doing? That's how it feels. Um, now let's back up though and let's look at this from a biblical perspective. I have three things, three kind of big ideas to end. That, that I want to talk about. The first is this, and this has to be the starting point when we're talking about waiting and we're talking about God's timing versus our timing. The starting point has to be this, that the Bible consistently says that God is always good. This is, this is where we have to start. Um, you know how um, in a movie or a TV show, and I've, maybe I just watch a lot of sci-fi stuff, or I don't know, but um, like this happened in Star Trek recently, where somebody in the movie or show is having a hallucination of a person and the, you know, so they're in a room and they see this other person and they're not really there. Now the first person who's seeing the hallucination, they know the person's a hallucination. And so they constantly have to tell, tell themselves, you're not real. You're not real. You're not real. And this was actually, I've seen this a bunch, but it was in a Star Trek discovery episode I was watching a little while ago and where Tilly was seeing a, um, a dead friend from her childhood that ended up being somebody from the mycelial network that was trying to make contact because the old doctor who died was in there and he was okay it doesn't matter but anyway she was seeing this hallucination that wasn't real and um, everywhere she went her friend was talking to her um, but nobody else could see or hear the friend and so Tilly was telling herself uh, she's not real she's not real she was she, she was preaching to herself um, reality this is reality it doesn't seem like it but real this is reality and in my mind i know that this is reality anyway that's what we have to do that's how we have to act sometimes uh the way we we feel is it feels to us like god is not good um sometimes right like and you know, did you ever think you'd hear your preacher say sometimes it feels like God is not good? But I mean, the Bible says, right, Job, look at the story of Job. Job's sitting there covered in boils and all his kids are dead. It's easy for him to go, man, maybe God isn't good, right? And so what we have to do is we have to do what Tilly did. We have to speak to ourselves. This is not reality. There's something I'm missing here. We know that God is good because 
That's what he has told us. And because it's what we have consistently seen throughout the history of the world and throughout especially the story of the gospel. The Bible always affirms that God is good. Like uh, Psalm 119, it says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes, right? Because you're good, I need you to teach me. Um, Luke 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, right? Those are just two verses that talk about how... um, how uh, God is good. I literally could have read dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. Um, there's a guy who wrote a book called Christian Theology. His name's Millard Erickson. Uh, that's a great EFCA kind of name. And uh, Millard Erickson says this. He talks about um, the goodness of God. He says, if the qualities of greatness described in the preceding chapters where he was talking about the, the power of God, right? Um, if those were uh, God's only attributes, he might conceivably be an immoral or amoral being exercising power and knowledge in a capricious or even cruel fashion. So if we talked about God having all this power, but not being good, we would be in a hard spot. And he says this, but because he is good, uh, he's as good as well as great. He can be trusted and he can be loved. Do you see that? We have these two sides, right? We have God is great and powerful and we have God is perfect and he's good. Um, in the New City Catechism that we use all the time at church, we read it every week. Um, it's, it's a big part of um, how we teach ourselves the gospel every week. Um, question two says this, um, you know, what is God? We read question two a little while ago because we read one every week. Um, so this would have been the second week of January. It says, God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable in his power and his perfection. And this is important. He's also um, uh, unchangeable in his goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens through him. uh, Nothing happens except through him and by his will. So everything that happens happens because uh, of the will of God. And everything that happens in the will of God happens also because God is good. Right? God is good, even when it doesn't seem like it. And so there's these, those are the two kind of big ideas, right? God is always good and nothing happens without his acting. But that doesn't mean that God always tells us everything. Parents don't tell kids everything. Generals don't tell foot soldiers everything. God does not owe you the details. If he really is good, that's enough. That's enough for us to trust him and to say, I don't always know what you're doing, but I do know that whatever it is, it's better than what I would do, and it's perfectly good. And the frustrating part, this is the frustrating part, where we have to really believe that and we have to preach that to ourselves. And there's two examples, right? From I'm, I could do a ton of examples from the Bible, but just to think of these two guys, right? You have the story of Job that I just mentioned. And this is, um, the whole story of Job is, when all this bad stuff happens to him, he's wrestling with, is God not who I thought he really was? And then God comes down and says, yeah, I am, but I haven't given you all the details and you have to be okay with that. Um, the other example is the story of Stephen, right? Stephen was uh, a church leader and um, this amazing guy and he gets arrested by the Sanhedrin, um, you know, just a little while after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost. And Paul and the guys on the Sanhedrin, they kill Stephen. And so Stephen sitting there, rocks raining down on his head, blood spilling. He's an amazing guy and he forgives the people who killed him, which is absolutely, uh, it's wonderful, right? It's great, Um, but it's hard to do. Now, how could Stephen do that? Because he trusted in the goodness of God. What happened after Stephen? 
Well, it caused a persecution, and a lot of other people died besides Stephen. But what happened was the church fled the persecution. They all ran away. And when they ran away, they took the gospel with them. And a lot more people ended up becoming followers of Jesus because of that persecution. So all of that happened. There was this big plan to push the church away. And in that one instance, we are given the details. And there are people in heaven right now sitting with Stephen, saying to Stephen, thank you for dying the way that you did. Because you died the way you did. I uh, was brought into the kingdom of God. And God had a perfect and a good plan that involved you suffering, but involved uh, it was, in the wide scale, it was good. In that moment, Stephen had no idea what was going to happen. He, he, the, the rocks were raining down and his life was ended. But in that, even God was good. So the second thing, we start with the goodness of God. The second thing we say then is that our impatience comes from a lack of trust in Jesus's goodness. Right? Do you remember the first sin with Adam and Eve? It was telling God, I know better than you. I want to run the show. My pride tells me I'm the top of the food chain. I have enough perspective to know what's going on. And God is making me wait. If I'm Jairus standing there stomping my foot while he's talking to this lady, it's because I know better than Jesus. I know better than him. The problem, right, though the truth is the problem's with me and not with him. My impatience is because I don't trust him. But should I trust him? That's the third point. Yes. Jesus is has proven time and time again, he has proven that we can trust his timing. Think of the context of this passage, right? He, this is the guy, this is the, Luke's answering that question. Who is this guy? Who is he? He has the power over, um, over the, 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 over nature and calming the sea. He has the power over the supernatural. He has power over sickness. And he even has power over death with the little girl. If somebody has, this is what Keller was getting at. If somebody has that much power, if somebody like that tells you, I need you to wait for a minute, maybe they have a reason, right? If somebody who can treat death like a nap, maybe you should trust that person, right? And so how does this hit home for us, right? Well, for our church, we've talked about a few weeks ago when we did the birthday anniversary, whatever sermon, the vision casting, I talked about how um, sometimes God has even whole churches in seasons of waiting and that sometimes being in those seasons of waiting stinks. Let's be real. Sometimes as a church, maybe we've felt like Jairus. Jesus, let's go. We were moving. The whole crowd was moving this way. And then all of a sudden we had to stop. So we've planted this church. We've raised the money. We have this partnership with this great church, uh, with the EFCA church. We have this partnership with Christ church. It's time to get rolling. Jesus says, now, nah, hold on a minute. I need you guys to wait for a little bit, and I want to teach you some things during that waiting. Um, or other, there's other times, right, not related to church specifically, um, but uh, you'll have seasons in your life where your timing does not match up with God's timing. Things I mentioned earlier, like, uh, you know, um, finding a spouse, having children, jobs, promotion, like a lot of stuff, where you're going to move, like what's happening in your life. Sometimes God makes us wait. And in the moment, it seems like it really stinks. It's hard. And we don't know what he's always up to, but it all boils down to this. Is he the king or am I the king? Right? Is he the Lord or am I the Lord? Did he from eternity past plan my salvation and defeat death on my behalf? Right? Yeah, he did. He reached into my life and he said to my dead heart, right? I was the, the bones in Ezekiel, right? I was completely dead. He, he reached in and he gave me a new heart. He said to my dead heart, get up. And he brought it back to life. 
And because of that, he is the king. He is the Lord. I am not, right? You are not. We are not. And so, um, uh, not only should we put up with his timing, right, when it's not lining up with our timing, but we should praise him because he has a plan for our church and for our lives that is so much better than our plan, right? What he is going to do is so much more good than anything that we could come up with. Um, he has the perspective and the power and the goodness to do whatever he wants, right? And so normally what we do at the end of a sermon is uh, I just sort of, I, I, I pray and then we end. This time I want to pray, but I want to do it a little bit different. Um, I want to end with a prayer um, from the New City Catechism. Now the New City Catechism, we read it every week, but there's actually a bigger version of it that comes with the devotional. And in the devotional, there's an um, like a reading from church history, there's a reading from sort of a modern theologian, and then it ends with a prayer. Now, at the end of question two, what is God, there's a prayer. And I want to just end real quick um, with that prayer, and then I'll see you guys next week for Easter, and uh, I'll see you at the park next week. So let's end this talking to um, the Lord of timing, right? The Lord who is so good and is so perfect, that he always has a better plan than what we have. It says this in that prayer. It says, our creator and sustainer, everything holds together in you. The smallest creature is known to you, and the mightiest army is at your command. You rule with justice. Help us to trust your goodness in all that you will. Amen.